In later years, Beatrice Davis, Eve Langley's editor, described Eve as a very strange and fascinating creature. She perceived her to be physically strong, but uninterested in the normal comforts that conventional people expect. She had a world full of fantasy, but could be extremely practical. She seemed tremendously shy, yet on the other hand, she was completely without fear. It was very difficult to feel close to Eve because you never felt she was really there at all. Douglas Stewart also noted the complexity of his friend who, despite appearances, could address the demands of writing life like any other author. All those years when she had this terrific drop into eccentricity, she could write a perfectly sane letter, have a perfectly sane interview. When we had a talk with her about the unpublished novels, we said we hoped to get around to selecting from them sometime and she was satisfied with this. It was a perfectly normal conversation, just like with any other author. This perplexing individual, who could be frumpy one minute and alive with the sparkling green eyes of a Becky Sharp the next, at one moment lucid and the next drifting off into another plane of thought, inspired great loyalty, friendship and admiration. Her lifelong friend, poet Gloria Rawlinson, wrote to Eve in January 1958. I love you for your pluck and your eyes which see so much. What more can one say? Eve's letters have a special role in accurately recreating the circumstances of her life after 1950. The relationship that developed between Eve and Beatrice Davis and Nan MacDonald was essentially related to Eve's performance as a writer. But in her correspondence with her editors, Eve described her thoughts and activities on a more personal level. Her best letters combined the unique and memorable qualities of her prose. Douglas Stewart observed that she wrote lovely letters, lovely words like melancholy that she liked just for the sound of them. There was realism and humour. The letters lit up the day. When you got a letter from Eve Langley, that was a wonderful event. Eve was a knowing creature whose drifts into fantasy were deliberately cultivated. She saw herself as a traveller in body and spirit and unconstrained by convention or time or place. In a rare interview, she explained her philosophy. A nomadic writer has more to say than a settled writer could ever say. The gypsy can speak, but the man who is settled, he can't speak. I'm just like a caravan, and like a caravan, I'm born to wander across all the plains of fantasy. That's what I really cultivate, a sort of embroidery of literature. I don't think myself that I've done very much in this world as a writer, except as one who chatters and embroiders all the time, endlessly, a great fantasy of romance. I just like to stroll across the plains of the imagination, and I just don't care. When I'm tired of the gods, I like to go up amongst the barbarians. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking with Helen Vines about her book, Eve Langley and the Pea Pickers, a new biography of Australian author Eve Langley. For more than a decade, Helen has been trawling the archive to accomplish what many have regarded as impossible, separating the facts from the fiction of Eve Langley's life. Helen, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Helen, what strikes me first about this biography is the extraordinary level of detail you've achieved and the way you've been able to piece together a disjointed and rather chaotic life story. Where has your research taken you where others have feared to tread? 
basically to the archives. The archives are where the magic happens when it comes to Eve Langley. You find a family history that is very problematic in many ways. The archives are very chaotic in many respects, and they're also in very fragile and edited versions often. The documents that Eve collected over the years were vast and often were copies of journals and letters that she had written, and I suspect her sister and her mother had written to her, that were intended to be used as a basis for her writing. So in the early 1930s, we have a letter that says, we are keeping your letters so you will have them to refer to. However, while clearly Eve did refer to these letters and base much of her writing on these letters and journals, she then went on to destroy them after she had rewritten them in a version presumably that she was more comfortable with. And these were separate to her manuscripts. This is problematic because we need to see the originals really to know exactly what she was doing, what she was thinking and what her purposes were in writing. And I decided that I would use a very strict methodology when I was constructing her biography, which is to say that I only use contemporary documents. I did not refer to her fiction as evidence of um, an occurrence in her life. So it enabled me to construct something that was incontestable in an environment which was very contested, which is to say many people who read her fiction as being straight autobiography came to conclusions which were not supported by the evidence. So the archives were very, very significant in terms of articulating who she was at particular points in time. The essential problem in Eve Langley and the Pea Pickers, and there's a line I would think that addresses it quite nicely, is Eve's fiction has segued into her biography and her biography has leached into readings of her fiction. So separating the facts from the fiction of Eve Langley's life has been a problem. What is it about Eve Langley's work and life that has made this so difficult? A very interesting part of Eve's life, as it is reflected in her fiction, is the way she constructs herself, because it makes her as a person, as separate from her as an author, to appear very, very peculiar and without any real explanation. So you don't get a sense of what the psychology is underpinning her writing. And often her writing is very problematic because she writes about things that, as one reader from Angus and Robertson said, people thought was more fit for the psychiatrist's couch than for reading by the general public. Now, this is an interesting comment from my point of view, because if we treat Eve's fiction as something separate to her life, then such a comment should not be relevant in my view. But if you mesh it all together, she looks very strange. So people who have not really thought through the chronology of her life, for example, but simply approached her through her fiction have come up with very interesting interpretations of who she was as a person. To separate those two things out, you really have to develop that chronology, and that has not been done before, and you then have to read the fiction simply as fiction, even if, as we know, it is essentially autobiographical fiction. But autobiographical fiction is not autobiography, and all of the people who've written about Eve, they know this, but because they didn't have the factual basis for separating the life and the fiction, it was almost easier to read the fiction as, as the life. 
But this is not sustainable in my view. You have to know what happened in her life, when and why, and how that played out you know, in her future. And that was critical for me in going right back through the archives. And I have to tell you, it was very, very difficult to do this. Not only, of course, anyone who's looked at old letters knows that the handwriting can be very, very difficult to read, but also the way she wrote, she used tiny, tiny script. Um, she wrote on both sides of the paper. Sometimes you couldn't tell who she was writing to. You couldn't tell who was writing to her because she cut the bits off the letters. So she, in fact, manipulated the archives. And this is what made it so difficult to try and establish that chronology. But having done so, I think that uh, this situates her in a much more relatable position. You can see the cause and effect in her life. You can see that when things became incredibly difficult, as they did after she had children, you can see how that would have ended up in a mental asylum. But if you don't know that, then this random woman appears to have just landed in a mental asylum after publishing a very important book. What does that mean? People have said she's schizophrenic. I have seen no evidence of that. Um, nobody's had access that I'm aware of to her psychiatric records. So we actually don't know anything about her. There's this veil of secrecy regarding her family matters and her family history. What did you discover in the archive that might throw some light on that? It became very clear to me that there were undercurrents within this family, the Langley family, that were hinted at in her fiction, but she never addressed outside the fiction. However, there was a particular fragment of letter that I read and reread over several years that suddenly made sense to me. I realised that Eve's mother, Mia, was writing to Eve to tell her about her sister June's pregnancy. For some reason, this was considered an enormous secret that could not be shared amongst uh, Mia's family back in Gippsland. And she says, you know how very secret we are. And this to me began a re-evaluation of what I had been looking at. Not only was the letter fragment itself very um, attenuated, it, which in itself reinforced the idea of secrecy. But the question was why? Why would you need to cover up a pregnancy? Her, the sister June had been married for two and a half years or thereabouts. There was no reason for this to be a secret. And yet secrecy started to emerge as a theme that was there to cover many of the odd references that were apparent in the pee-pickers and all of the subsequent fiction. So when Pea Pickers was released, it was actually received very well by both critics and the public. Miles Franklin wrote about it, the clique is gushing over the Pea Pickers, and there was even some speculation that Miles Franklin herself might have written the book. So what was it about the Pea Pickers that resonated so powerfully with Australians? I think it broke with conventions, which is to say the language was very poetic and yet very precise. It was offering a new way of looking at the landscape and the people who worked within the landscape. It, someone referred to it as being sketched with the mind of an artist. This was quite unique in the sense that at the time, people had a sense of what our landscape looked like, but she brought something completely new to it, which was sort of almost a sensory response on every level to what she was seeing and what she was experiencing. That was one thing. 
Another thing was the heroine, who was obviously the narrator, Steve Hart. Now, Steve Hart was named after a member of the Ned Kelly gang who was known to dress as a woman. So you had a narrator who was a woman who identified herself by a man's name and the name of the man was a man who dressed as a woman. So this was a very curious development um, in the history of heroines in Australian fiction. And people kept coming back to this very interesting character who formed the core of the Pea Pickers and White Topay and the subsequent fiction. The Pea Pickers was based on the real life experiences of Eve and her sister June. It tells the story of two young women who dress as men and go and work as itinerant labourers in Victoria and New South Wales. Their antics intrigue and challenge wherever they went. So while the narrator Steve is named after a member of the Ned Kelly gang, her sister Blue is identified early in the novel as actually her real-life sister June. So there are two very different characters here. Blue is actually named after a nightcart man. So he is heard stumbling around in the dark, changing the toilet. So this immediately sets up a very interesting dynamic between these two sisters. And this plays out throughout the fiction. Eve comes to associate her sister with her, their father and becomes very ambivalent in how she actually feels about her. In the end, there's a situation where they have to part because Eve feels so strongly that she cannot grow up with her sister who is always dragging her back to the past. But there were behaviours, there were antics in the pea pickers that really fascinated people. She was very funny. Um, she and her sister were described as rampaging through the pea pickers. They saw themselves as being separate and different from others around them. They played tricks on people, extreme behaviours to survive in a world which was dominated by men and migrant labourers and people who were completely perplexed by them dressing as men, but also as women. So they had clothing that was masculine in a sense in that they were wearing trousers and uh, overalls but they also wore scarves and they wore tight little belts that clinched in their waists so this was not a narrator who could be pinned down she was very extreme in her emotions she didn't hold back when she was feeling a sense of despair she was desperate and when she was feeling excited and energized she was flying so there were many things about this book that really jumped off the page and I felt that myself as well when I first picked it up. If we can now talk about White Tope, what are the similarities and differences to Pea Pickers? Is there a sense of development from Pea Pickers to White Tope? Well, yes and no. In the Pea Pickers, you find that the relationship between the sisters evolves to a point where they feel they have to separate. And in White Topay, Eve is, or Steve, the character Steve, is actually on her own without the sister June. And without June, the momentum of the story slows. You don't have the same opportunities to interact with other characters within the book. You don't have the same opportunity to engage in the sort of pranks that occurred when June was there. And at the end of the book, Steve goes back to Blue. And in that sense, it doesn't really progress. She spends time on her own. 
She's working as a labourer still. It's still a really beautiful book, but everybody from Nan McDonald, who edited the book, through to, well, to myself, I guess, uh, had a sense that this was a sort of extension, but not a development. So following White Tope, Eve's success in publishing was quite limited. How much of that success can you attribute to Eve herself and how much to her publisher, Angus and Robertson? Eve submitted her manuscripts in a form that was difficult to read. They were very closely typed. They were on pink paper and they were problematic even as physical objects. They also were repetitive. They had not been edited. They were confined to a particular length, which was 400 pages. They dealt with subject matter that the publishers struggled with. In that sense, Eve was a bit self-destructive in terms of how she was going to proceed as an author. Having said that, it was recognised that there was a lot of her uh, ingenuity in these manuscripts and the editors were very sympathetic to this and they were interested in perhaps combining uh, some of the subsequent books into a smaller volume. The idea that Eve was hard to edit came about because she reacted so strongly to the rejection of Wild Australia, which was her third submitted novel. And after that rejection, she actually changed her name to Oscar Wilde. So there was a sense that things had destabilised and it was felt that perhaps she wouldn't agree to having her manuscripts reduced in size or edited to exclude some of the material, particularly the material relating to the Oscar Wilde theme. On the other hand, Angus and Robertson um, gradually revisited its focus. So those literary pieces that had provided such wonderful examples of Australian literature began to be seen as almost a boutique part of the industry. And Eve's manuscripts required a lot of work. There just wasn't the time and the energy, although Beatrice Davis and Anne MacDonald would very happily have done that. Then the publishing house was broken up and history tells the story of what happened to Angus and Robertson. It is no more. <laughs> so having said all that, what are the prospects for publishing Eve Langley's unpublished works into the future? That's a good question. Um, Eve's unpublished manuscripts were uh, edited into a book called that's called Wild Eve uh, by Lucy Frost. I don't know what opportunities there are to, it would be very much dependent on the family, I guess, what they would like to do with it. Certainly a common theme from her editors were they were not publishable as they were. And that, of course, is absolutely true. Eve was not particularly disciplined in the way that she wrote. She was reluctant to visit, revisit her work and edit it. And I go into that a little bit in the final chapter of my book called The Invisible Cloak of Childhood. Uh, but certainly the pea pickers, I think, will always have a place in Australian literature because it is a fascinating piece of work and everybody should request it and read it. Helen, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Greg. I've been talking to Helen Vines about her book, Eve Langley and the Pea Pickers, a new biography of Australian author Eve Langley. It's published by Monash University and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. 
Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.